0: This morning, please turn with me as we celebrate as God's people the liberty of our land, and we'll read in God's Word from the 119th Psalm, verses 41 to 48. Please pay special note to verse 45 in our reading. We read the entire section beginning at the 41st verse of Psalm 119. Hear now God's Word. Let thy lovingkindness also come unto me, O Jehovah, even thy salvation according to thy word. So shall I have an answer for him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thine ordinances. So shall I observe thy law continually, forever and ever. And I shall walk at liberty, for I have sought thy precepts. I also will speak of thy testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame. And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. I will lift up my hands also unto thy commandments, which I have loved. And I will meditate on thy statutes. Thus far the reading of God's word. One hundred years ago, the Statue of Liberty was dedicated, as you know very well if you've been reading your papers or watching the TV this weekend, a hundred years ago the Statue of Liberty was dedicated presiding over New York Harbor on Ellis Island, the entryway into America for thousands of European immigrants. And I think we've all undoubtedly thrilled at the drama and the pageant and the excitement of this weekend's fireworks, its uh, displays of music, its patriotism, and the rededication of that statue of liberty. I think it would be both timely and appropriate then that we as God's people stop to consider the liberty which is being praised all around us this weekend. I think the best way to honor the statue of liberty would be for us to commit ourselves to the statutes of liberty which God has graciously revealed for our direction in his holy law. I'm going to pose this question as we begin our consideration this morning. I'm going to ask you whether we have lost the liberty for which this country was founded. Have we lost or are we in the process of losing that liberty for which this country was founded? You know, those entering America under the torch of the Statue of Liberty, uh, for them, America represented the land of the free, America meant freedom, very simply. Freedom from political oppression and military hostilities. Freedom from economic deprivation and marketplace barriers. Freedom for individual belief and self-expression. Freedom to worship God. This year, America celebrates her 210th year of independence. Independence from the unjust tyranny of the British Crown and Parliament, and the reasons for her independence, and the fruits of that independence must not be forgotten, or else we become guilty, as I think our society this weekend is pervasively guilty of false witness, of promoting in the name of liberty, under the word freedom, a world and life view and understanding of man's place in the universe and his relationship to God, which is almost completely the opposite of what was the mentality of those who founded this country. And so we mustn't forget what independence meant in those days. It meant, first of all, freedom of religious belief and practice. Why did the Puritans come to this land in the 1600s? They came fleeing the oppression of the Anglican Church, the oppression of a tyrannical church that was backed by a tyrannical state in England. The Puritans in the mid-1600s established this land and the political structure of this land and the worldview of this land. One century after John Calvin was writing, in the mid-1500s, the institutes of the Christian religion that would give rise to the Presbyterian Church in Scotland and the Puritan movement in England and the immigration to this country with a new outlook that says freedom is grounded in a relationship with Jesus Christ and with obedience to his holy laws and therefore a just relationship to our fellow man. And so in the mid-1600s, remember the Puritans and how they sought their religious freedom, a freedom within the law of God, a freedom that was defined by a relationship to Jesus Christ. A century later, in the mid-1700s, that freedom of religious belief and practice that was enjoyed had wider implications. A freedom from unjust taxation and government imposition was felt to be concomitant with that freedom of God's people established in this land. Freedom for economic self-improvement without either the stimulus or the barriers of the government intruding in the marketplace. And freedom to enjoy the safety and the security of life and property as well as the pursuit of happiness. Now, those freedoms, those precious freedoms were the fruit of a self-conscious commitment to the Christian worldview, a commitment rooted in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and centered on religious faith in Jesus Christ. We are just blind to history, and it, just, it concerns me greatly that so many of us as Christians are blind to history. We don't see that the Western world did not know true freedom until the advent of the Christian faith until nurture in the precepts of Christianity. The Puritans of the 1600s and the American colonists of the 1700s were working out to their fullest implications the freedom that comes in Jesus Christ, the freedom which was founded on a saving relationship with God and came to expression in one's personal conduct, one's corporate worship, one's socio-political relationships. However, in today's society, in the mid-1900s, I think our society has come to see freedom in a way completely different from the freedom the Puritans understood and the colonists fought for. Freedom has come to mean something much, much different, when you stop and think about it. Today, freedom means freedom from authority, freedom from authority of any kind, parental, school, police, governmental. Today, freedom means freedom to break our contracts and freedom to abuse our neighbor's property and to envy his hard work and live off of his hard work. Today, freedom has come to mean getting high and losing self-control in alcohol or drugs or what have you. Today, freedom means the freedom to kill the inconvenient, unborn, It means freedom for sexual looseness and perversity and marital infidelity. It means freedom to blaspheme and ignore God. In a word, it means freedom to get beyond good and evil for the sake of living simply unto yourself. I was watching the television coverage of the Liberty Celebration in New York and Washington and around this country. And was taken, I had already composed the notes for my sermon, but I could not have asked a better illustration of the very thing I'm railing against now than when we have coverage of the liberty, the freedom of what it means to be an American, including two high school girls being able to go to their prom together. Freedom to promote lesbian relationships, as though that is what America represents. You can be sure our forefathers were spinning in their graves to have the thought that the freedom they fought for meant sexual perversity. And not only has freedom come to be debased and applied to something completely different than the Puritan worldview that was the foundation of this country, the freedoms that were originally gained by our forefathers have ironically been steadily surrendered to big governments' intrusions into the marketplace. Surrendered to bureaucratic red tape and volumes of regulations that no one single individual can even master, much less live up to. Surrendered to restrictions on religious liberty. Think of the government's intrusion into the Christian school movement, the attempt to stamp it out. We have surrendered our freedom to foreign involvements and domestic welfare and education which are not the business of government in the first place. And of course, we've surrendered our freedom to the accompanying whopping tax bills that come with all of this big government, centralized government, the beast, as John spoke of it in Revelation. You know, the oppressed of the world, those teeming masses yearning to be free, they used to enter America with our ready and charitable encouragement. Today, we selfishly guard our borders. I'm telling you, the freedom that's being celebrated this weekend and the liberty of which we speak is not the freedom and the liberty with which this country began. The words have changed. The content of the words has changed. The freedom that we speak of this Fourth of July weekend celebrating the Statue of Liberty seems to be a far cry from what our forefathers envisioned. I think we're quickly losing the political freedoms for which they fought while simultaneously We are promoting a morally perverse social freedom which would have offended their Christian sensibilities. And so this morning, if what I'm saying is even partially true, if I've gained your attention, will you now consider what freedom is not? I think we need to make it very clear what freedom is not. I'm going to say it's at least not two things. Liberty is not statism, big government, and centralism. And secondly, liberty is not libertarianism, anarchy, and revolution. You will be forced to ask, what are the choices then if those two things are canceled out? The choice is going to be only the liberty provided in the just and fair, morally proper balances of God's law. Liberty is not, I say, statism, big government, and centralism. It will probably shock you if you take a tour of Boston, as my family did last year on a vacation around this country, it will shock you to pay attention to the very minuscule amount of taxation that the british parliament imposed upon the colonies for which the colonies said forget it no taxation without representation and there's no way our representatives would pass such a tax minuscule in contrast to the whopping taxes that we pay now Why do we have whopping taxes? Am I complaining just because my pocketbook is hurting? No. I'm complaining because these taxes are being spent on things for which God has never empowered government to work in the first place. We have bought into a view of the state that allows for the state to be virtually a messiah. The state is the source of our freedoms, not God. The state is the source of our deliverance, not God. The, so- the state is the source of our discipline rather than God's law in our hearts. The state is everything to us today. Big government. I mean, there ought to be a law, right? How often have you heard that? I hate that expression, there ought to be a law. We've come to have this mentality that anything we see that's wrong, we think there should be a law, and you know what? You'll usually find a politician who will get himself elected pretending that that's what he wants too. Laws, laws, and more laws. Regulations and over-regulations and super-regulations. It's just incredible what we put up with. And, of course, we're paying. God tells us, you know, we bow down to the wrong gods. They're going to extract from us. And that's what the government is doing today. And so we don't have freedom to promote... um, our own improvement in the marketplace. We don't have freedom to get by without taxation and zoning codes and uh, answering to OSHA. We don't have freedom to even begin a Christian school without people in the state thinking that they have to certify our teachers. They have to determine whether this is a proper place and method that we are using. The government has simply become, as I said, the beast. They say, that's awfully harsh language, Dr. Bunsen. Yes, but you just read Revelation 13th chapter. And you'll note that the beast, both in the days of John, the Roman Empire then, and everyone that emulates the concept of government that the ancient Roman Empire um, represented, is just that beastly. Because it says you will not enter into the marketplace, you will not buy or sell without the mark of the beast upon your forehead and upon your hand. And they said, well, our government's not marking our foreheads and our hands? That's right, it's not. That isn't what John meant in Revelation 13. What he meant is, the law of the government controls what we do and controls what we think. And so try getting a teaching certificate today without being certified with the outlook of the government. Try running a business today that doesn't match up to the regulations, the various business codes that the government imposes. The government controls our education, the government controls our welfare, The government lays down law after law, and the amazing thing is the one thing the government is supposed to do, protect us from crime and from foreign invasion, it doesn't do very well at all. And those things which God has not empowered the government to do, it is attempting to do and falling flat on its face. Liberty is not statism. Liberty is not centralism. Liberty is not big government, but rather freedom from big government. Freedom of self-expression, freedom of worship, freedom of economic self-improvement without the government looking over your shoulder, without the government asking you to answer to it for everything you do and say. The Puritans who founded this land and the colonists who fought for our liberties would not have put up with the big government that we have today. Again, we are blind to history. We have forgotten how this all happened. It took quite a while to get the various states to ratify the Constitution, to come into this union and to abide by its laws because it was understood that localism was more important than federalism. But of course, by the mid-1800s in our country, we had taken into mind that federalism and the union of these states was more important than the individual local integrity of the states. And so we fought a bloody war, the bloodiest of wars in our nation, contrary to the Constitution and the liberty that the Constitution represents. And since that time, it's been a downward um, course, it seems to me. It takes a long time to re-educate people to understand what localism and true freedom meant in the early days of this country because we have, after the Civil War, or better, the War of Northern Aggression, After that conflict, we have just taken into our minds that the federal government is everything. I'm telling you, liberty is not statism. It's not big government. It's not centralism. They are the enemies of liberty. Someone says, well, then, of course, he must mean liberty is this libertarianism that is promoted in the Orange County Register that uh, liberty is anarchy, it's revolution, it's every man being free of government, every man being free of discipline, every man being free of law, and I'm saying, no, just the opposite. Liberty is not big government, nor is it anarchy. Someone says, well, but look at the American Revolution. Certainly, that was anarchy. That was revolution against constituted authority. It was, as some people suggest, a violation of Romans 13. Again, we need to study our history. The American Revolution is perhaps better described as a conservative counter-revolution against the illegal and the tyrannical assertion of sovereignty by the English Parliament and King. The colonists, you need to remember, asserted the free-born rights of all Englishmen against the crown, against the absolutism and the impositions of the English king as they were exercised through the parliament. You see, the appeal of the colonists was to law. It was an appeal to law above the king, a law which, when repeatedly violated without redress, convicted the king of crimes against his people and released them from obligation to him as the covenant breaker. In other words, the colonists were saying, you, king, you have revolted against the established laws of Englishmen. You are the one who has brought tyranny in this situation. You are the contract breaker. You are the covenant breaker. You see, the King of England had ceased being a feudal and contractual king, refusing to veto the illegal acts of the statist English parliament and protect the local assemblies and governments of the American colonies. If you will stop and think for just a minute, I can depart a bit from biblical exegesis and just give a little historical accuracy here. Stop and remember, the English government had an empire around the world, and in each place the English empire was established, there were local governing assemblies, local parliaments and legislatures. The English parliament governed England. It did not govern Scotland. It did not govern Canada. It did not govern Australia or America all of the various parliaments were under the loose and feudal kingship of the central prince, in this day, King George III. And the English parliament had authority to supervise the affairs of the empire as a whole. That was recognized by the colonists. But the English parliament had no authority to tax or regulate the colonists externally or internally. And when the English Parliament rode roughshod over the freedoms and rights of Englishmen by disregarding the internal government of the American colonies, and when the King then violated his contract with the colonies by refusing to protect them, the Declaration of Independence became necessary. Became necessary as an appeal to and as a preservation of the higher law which all Englishmen recognized. if you want an analogy, and it's only an analogy, but will help you to reorient your thinking about what happened historically. It's as though the legislature of Oklahoma decided to legislate the taxes and the regulations for California. And Californians then will refuse to obey the Oklahoma legislature and appeal to whatever authority you think in this illustration is appropriate, let's say it's the federal government, to protect it against those intrusions, and the federal government refuses to intervene and do that. Likewise, the king was to protect the colonists against the English parliament, and he did not. As Andrew McLaughlin in his book Foundations of American Constitutionalism put it, the central principle of the American Revolution was just this, that rebellion against an unlawful act is not rebellion, but the maintenance of law." In 1839, on the Jubilee of the Constitution, John Quincy Adams declared these words about the revolutionists, and I quote him, "'English liberties had failed them. From the omnipotence of Parliament, the colonists appealed to the rights of man and the omnipotence of the god of battles.'" In May of 1776, William Henry Drayton reviewed constitutional history and declared that the King and the Parliament of England were lawbreakers. The Glorious Revolution in England of 1688 had dethroned James II by an appeal to higher law and the breach of contract by the Crown. And so the Declaration of Independence of 1776 would likewise appeal against the breach of contract by George III this last week, for your convenience, the register uh, printed in full the Declaration of the Thirteen United States of America on July 4th in 1776. The reason I appreciate this and, and uh, similar publications is that so often we hear only the preamble the Declaration of Independence, which are glorious words, to be sure. But if you stop at the preamble, that can be be applied in any number of ways. The preamble, taken away from the Christian foundation and the specific application that you find in the document, could be applied to the French Revolution, could be applied to the Russian Revolution, could be applied to anarchy. But you need to understand that after those glorious preambulatory words, The Declaration of Independence makes very clear what I've been telling you here this morning. So if I can skip over those words that you already know so well, let me continue at the end of the preamble with these words. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing inevitably the same object evidences a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Listen now. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former system of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. And then it goes into the facts submitted to a candid world to prove that the king had broken his contract with the colonists. And uh, there's a whole page of them here. I'm only going to excerpt two or three to make the point. Uh, jumping in the middle here. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. What's the reference to the English parliament? He has submitted us to the English parliament contrary to our constitution. He has no right to do that. He has established arbitrary government, introducing absolute rule into these colonies for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws and altering fundamentally the forms of our government, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren we have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. And then finally at the end, the appeal to the supreme judge of the world, to the law of God that protects them against the violation of the English king and parliament, the violation of the contract with which they were established in this land. And so if we're going to think accurately and historically, We must recognize that freedom does not mean big government, but nor does freedom mean anarchy. What does freedom mean? To answer the question properly, we have to remember as well the Christian foundations of American liberty. It's at just this point that a number of people begin to uh, guffaw, begin to uh, ridicule, begin to say, now what does he really know about history? This country is not a Christian country. If anything, deism was the reigning faith of this country at its foundation. I want to suggest to you that people who say that are very simplistic in their thinking and very inaccurate in their application. I'm going to take the two leading examples of deism in the early days of our country and read some words from them and then ask you a question about their sincerity as deist. Benjamin Franklin said these things at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. He said, "...to that kind superintending providence we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord built the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without this concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. You say, but he said other things that sounded so deistic. Yes, he did. He was a confused man. The epistemological self-consciousness of 200 years had not been added to Benjamin Franklin. But the fact is, he lived in a Christian world with the outlook of Christians all about him. And though he was deist in some regards and probably a, a Jacobean in other regards, he had Christian sentiments mixed in with that too. And this is the leading illustration. What about Thomas Jefferson? an alleged deist, but I think more accurately described as Franklin, as an eclectic, one who collected ideas from a number of places. Jefferson said this, Can the liberties of a nation be sure when we remove their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people, that these liberties are the gift of God, that they are not to be violated but with his wrath? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, And in the same place, Jefferson went on to speak of the supernatural interference of God in the uh, bringing about of this country. Does that sound deistic, supernatural interference? The very opposite of the deistic philosophy that Jefferson, at other points, propounded. No, this country was founded not perfectly and not with great epistemological self-consistency, but this country was founded within the general parameters of a Christian outlook on life. And so in the farewell address of George Washington on September 17, 1796, we see Washington decrying the idea of a secular state, which is what we have in the 20th century, a secular state. Washington said, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation deserts the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in the courts of justice? And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion." Reason and experience forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. It is substantially true that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of every popular government. And so the Christian framework, the Christian presuppositions that were the common lot of the people that founded this country are the presuppositions that will guide us in understanding the liberty that they promoted. And that's why I'm led to assert today that though the Statue of Liberty may have lost its original meaning, at least the liberty for which this country was founded, we can understand that the liberty the colonists looked for was a liberty within law. We we sang that this morning in the hymn, America the Beautiful. America, America, God mend thy every flaw, confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law. What is liberty if it's not big government and it's not anarchy? Liberty is submission to the laws of God that give not only moral self-discipline but also freedom from the intrusions of big brother. What law is it that can preserve order and decency while securing freedom of individual uh, improvement and self-expression? The early colonists, just like the Puritans before them, knew there could only be the law of God David in Psalm 119, a psalm that is given entirely to the extolling of the law of God in its many, many characteristics and respects. Psalm 119 at verse 45 says, "...and I shall walk at liberty, for I have sought thy precepts." Immediately, David would be convicted of self-contradiction given the 20th century mentality. No, freedom means freedom from God's law according to the 20th century, Freedom in the existentialist sense of uh, modern philosophy means freedom to define yourself, to be yourself, to do whatever you want without any outside intrusion, without any outside guidance, without any kind of barriers. But David said, no, true freedom is found in walking in God's law. I remember Francis Schaeffer speaking when I was in college and using this apt illustration. He said, you know, an artist may want to be free, He may want to slap his canvas in any way he wants, toss the paint bucket at the canvas, do all sorts of absurd chance things to produce his art, but an artist cannot be so free as to forget that he has a canvas. There is no freedom when there are no barriers, when there is no background, when there are no, you see, circumscribing conditions. When everything is wide open and free, then there is no freedom. There's just chaos. There can be no freedom if our society becomes full of people that just do whatever they want to do. If a woman gets pregnant and she doesn't happen to want that uh, pregnancy to advance, we think, well, she has the freedom in her privacy to destroy that child. But you see, the same reasoning should grant me the freedom to destroy you when you're walking across the street because I'm free to go down the street at that time. You're free to cross it, so if you want to encounter my car, that's fine. We'll see whose freedom is the stronger. This thinking that lets everyone do what he wants to do regardless of others is not freedom. It's chaos. David said true freedom is found, true liberty is found when we seek out the precepts of God. You see, these statutes that we find in the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, these statutes were revealed to God's people Israel. When? Well, interestingly, when Israel had enjoyed its declaration of independence. When Israel came out of Egypt and left the bondage and oppression of that land, then God gave Israel laws appropriate to her freedom. Then God gave laws to Israel that would maintain and preserve her freedoms in the new land to which he was taking her. In James, the first chapter, verse 25, James calls the law of God the perfect law of liberty. Again, the 20th century can't understand that, but God's people can. God's people can understand that what God has laid down for the guidance of our conduct in the world is the only real source of freedom, the only true way to enjoy the blessings of being created, the blessings of individual self-expression and choice without falling into the torturous uh, extremes of either statism or anarchy. Liberty is individual freedom within God's law. Liberty is individual freedom within the law of God. But you know, God's law can be enjoyed only by those who are no longer slaves of sin. It is impossible this morning, even at this late time, to present an address to you about American freedom and about the law of God in some general way as being the foundation of true freedom, both here or anywhere else, Without mentioning that we can no longer enjoy that freedom if we have given up the foundation of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. God's law can only be enjoyed by those who are no longer slaves of sin. In John, the 8th chapter, verses 31 to 36, I want you to see in closing what Jesus says about true freedom. He says to the Jews that had believed him, if you abide in my word, then are you truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered unto him, We are Abraham's seed, and have never yet been in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Everyone that commits sin is the bondservant of sin. And the bondservant abideth not in the house forever, the Son abideth forever. If therefore the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free." Indeed. We learn four very brief lessons here. First of all, Jesus points out that the most important bondage we face is spiritual, not political. Jesus says, you shall be made free, and they answer him, we're Abraham's seed. We've never been in bondage to any man. Jesus says, yes, but you're sinners, and that makes you the slaves of sin. Far more important, More fundamental, crucial, that you break the bondage to sin before you start considering the bondage to other men in in political affairs. Secondly, Jesus says that those who sin are slaves, slaves of sin. In verse 34, he tells us that, that if we have bought into the rebellious principle, if we have rebelled against God and disregarded his law, then we are slaves. We may think we've gained our freedom. Isn't that ironic? In the 20th century, we think by throwing off the law of God, we become free men. Jesus says, by throwing off the law of God, you become slaves. Slaves of your passions. Slaves of your rebellion. Slaves of your self-destructive, unloving lifestyle. You become slaves of sin. Thirdly, Jesus says, we need to believe him and abide in his word. He speaks to those Jews that believed on him. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. So one of the reasons why we don't enjoy freedom today, spiritual or political, is because we won't abide in the Word of God. We want everything spoon-fed to us. We're not students of Scripture. We aren't disciples of Jesus Christ. We're on for a free ride. We want everyone else to do the thinking and everyone else to do the the hard work and everyone else to march out there at the clinics and everyone else to go out there and vote and everyone else to go run for office. We want everyone else to do our work for us and then we just enjoy the fruits. Well, you see, that's been cutting off from us. The fruits are no longer going to come. Jesus says the fruit of freedom is planted in being a disciple of him and learning his word. And then he says, and Verses 32 and 36, we will know the truth that genuinely sets us free. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And if the Son shall make you free, you'll be free indeed. Truly, genuinely free. And so what's the conclusion of our consideration this morning about Liberty Weekend? I would conclude that America's greatest need is for conversion to Jesus Christ that the statutes of liberty might then reign supreme. The greatest need in our country today is for revival, pure and simple, a turning to Jesus Christ as Savior, being unleashed from the shackles of sin that we might become disciples of the Word of God and then live according to His law. And so friends, let's pray this Liberty Weekend that Christ might be confessed as our King, both in our individual hearts spiritually and in our national laws politically. Let's pray for revival, that the kingship of Jesus Christ, as it was once understood, though imperfectly, might all the more be understood and shine unto glory. Because only when we learn spiritual freedom and only when we return to the law of God as our national standard will the celebration of the Statue of Liberty have substance and integrity. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for America. We thank you for the goodness and mercy and the providence that you have shown to our land in bringing about our national existence, informing our laws, and giving us great prosperity and peace, the fruits of freedom. And yet this morning we pray that you would forgive our land, forgive us first individually, because we have not submitted to the kingship of your Son, Jesus Christ. We have not given our lives to your allegiance. We have lived unto ourselves selfishly, unlovingly. We have transgressed your laws. Indeed, God, we have come to a point of such utter moral misery and ruin That we would be deceiving ourselves if we didn't see your hand of judgment about to fall on our land. And we pray that you would stay that judgment and give us time to repent. We pray, Father, that you would give the preaching of the word boldness in our land. That you would return our churches to orthodoxy and to the truth of the scriptures. That you might call our people by the power of your Holy Spirit to allegiance to Jesus Christ. Oh God, revive us. Revive our land, teach us to worship the king, to submit to his laws, and within that framework to enjoy the only true, genuine freedom that can be ours. God, we thank you for America. We pray this morning that you would shed your grace on us again, that you would indeed mend our every flaw that you would confirm our souls in self-control and our liberty in your law. For we pray in the name of our King and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for his sake, amen.